Good evening. You can open up to Matthew chapter 19. It starts off in, in verse 1 of 19. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Uh, when it says that Jesus finished saying these things, we're talking about his period just in this Galilean region, which actually started in chapter 11, I believe it was. And we think, or people think, it was about a year and a half's period of time. And so, you know, it's hard to, again, embrace this. We start reading this, and it all seems like it's just in a week's period. You know, you read the gospel, and it's like, oh, yeah, this happened, this happened. And it just seems like a fluid thing. But from chapter 11 to this chapter is possibly a year and a half. And it just makes me wonder what more happened. I mean, a year and a half and just these eight chapters is so little for a year and a half's worth of time. But it just gives us an idea of how powerful this ministry was and to give us a little bit more uh, of a concept of the time that was taking place here. Um, there's a transition that's taking place here in Luke's gospel. When it talks about this, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven. And that says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so as he's leaving the Galilean region and heading for Jerusalem, there's a change that's taking place. It's marking the end of a certain type of ministry and the continuing of a different type of ministry, a ministry now that is going to be more focused on actually the cross, the crucifixion, and the things that are coming ahead. And so we see that change taking place. There is this transi transition that's taking place here, and it marks the end of one area, and it's the beginning of something new. And then we go on in verse 3, and we'll read verses 3 all the way down to verse 11, or actually um, verse 12. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because, of your, because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, so this should be a fun subject. <laughs> Divorce and marriage. In, in reading this section of scripture, are there any questions that you guys have? I want to try and address questions, especially on a topic like divorce. You know, the odds are that a good percentage, maybe 50% of the people in this room have been married and divorced. That's kind of a standard percentage, 50%. And so it is something that is prominent today. It was something that was prominent back then. Jesus makes some pretty sweeping statements that cause us to maybe reel back and, and just the, 
the power of these statements, and there may be a lot of questions regarding this that you have or have had. So I'm asking you, are there anything that stands out that you would like to understand maybe a little bit more? I want to make sure I cover the things that you have questions about in this passage. Marco. Eunuch? Eunuch is a person, well, a person who's made a eunuch is basically a person who's castrated. Okay. Yep, there you go. Um, some were born that way, maybe a physical defect. Some, especially at this time in the Roman Empire, uh, they were made that way. It's like uh, you're going to be a slave, and I want to make sure I don't have to worry about you and my wife or something like that. And so, yep, they're eunuch. And, and then some choose to live like a eunuch, meaning they're not going to have the sexual relationships. Any questions on this? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and start talking about some things, but... No questions? Well, let's see. Maybe when I start talking about it, you'll get questions. I have a tendency to do that. Sam, whenever you're done, I have more questions than before. First of all, we see that the Pharisees came for a specific reason. It was to test him or to tempt him. They were trying to entrap him. They wanted to put a snare so that they can kind of get him to under, you know, falter in his you know, discourse with them in front of the people. And so they're doing it with these motives in mind and wanting to test him. They asked, is it lawful? When they ask lawful, it might not be the same idea that we think of lawful. It would be more like, is it biblical? That would be kind of an interpretation of lawful. When we think lawful, is it lawful to drive 75 miles an hour on the 210 freeway? You know, that's our idea of lawful. But their idea of lawful has to do with the scripture, with what Moses disclosed in the law. Um, That's what they're thinking of as far as lawful. So it's not so much, is it just legal? But is it according to God's plan? Is it biblical to divorce for, then here's the other key, for any and every reason? Those two things, is it biblical for any and every reason? Now, just like divorce can be very controversial in in topics, especially in a religious circle, it, it was very controversial back then. There were two schools of thought, two rabbis that dominated this conversation at the time of Christ. One is Hillel and the other is Shammai. And what they are asking about is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And in Deuteronomy, we should turn there real quick just to read that passage and get an idea of what he's talking about and why they are asking this. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, we're just going to read the first part of it because we're going to focus on Matthew's passage. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Some translations might say unclean. Okay, the idea here is what is that? And so the two schools of thought, indecent or unclean, what does that mean? And Shammai was very, I don't know what you'd say, he was a little bit more legalistic. He was a little bit more conservative, I would say, in this. His thought on indecent or unclean, uncleanliness would be, he felt it was fornication. There was a sexual sin where Hillel thought it was anything you wanted. If she's not making you happy anymore, you have the right to divorce her. She's become unpleasing to you. She's become indecent to you. And so there was these two schools of thought. Anytime I find something I don't like about her, I have reason for divorce. The other school of thought was, no, it's only for sexual sin that you're allowed to divorce. And it's interesting because they said, is it lawful? Is it biblical for any reason? And Jesus doesn't go to the law. 
he goes to the beginning. He goes before the law to the creation. And, and what he's doing is he's taking them back to the intention. And to get proper interpretation, it's always good to have clear intention so that you can bring that proper interpretation. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's going all the way back to the beginning. And that's what he says there. Haven't you read? Which is a little bit of a slam. Don't you read your scriptures? Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creation, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. His point is that this is not a matter of just a structure in a legal sense. This is not just a matter of what the law says. This is a matter of what God had intended, that the two would become one flesh. So they're not two people that get to split up. They're one person, and what God has put together, let no one take apart. And so again, the intention of marriage, the intention of male and female was to be united and it was to become one flesh. It wasn't to see if it works out, you know, enjoy each other for a while and then try something else, see if that works for a while. The intention was to be for long term for life, that they were supposed to be together and they were supposed to stay together. That was God's intent, that they would be joined, glued, one. So the intention was there to be one. Why are you looking now at the law to find a way to split them up? Because that's what they were doing. Is it lawful? Is it biblical for us to do that? Well, that wasn't the intent. And so they come back. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, first of all, Moses never commanded, as we read in Deuteronomy. And Jesus brings that to the point. He says Moses permitted. Moses didn't command. He permitted. What Moses did in the law was actually make it more difficult to get a divorce. He didn't make it easy. Now you had to go to a scribe. You had to get a writing. It required more to get a divorce. So instead of just, I'm done with you, you're out of here. And remember, this is a very male-dominated world that we're looking at. And much of it is still today. And so instead of there being just, I can, yeah, I'm done with you, Moses says, no. If there's going to be a divorce, it has to go to a scribe and it has to be written out. There has to be an approval. Need to make it more difficult was the purpose of that. And he says, Moses permitted you divorce-wise because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way. Again, he goes, from the beginning. That's not how it was supposed to be. That's not what God intended in the creation. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And now what Jesus is doing is really taking one of the sides. He, he's kind of siding up with the one rabbi, Shammai, and saying, no, it's just for this reason. And then he goes a little bit further and he presses them with what's really going on. You know, you're so religious, you're so proper, and you've got your, I, I wrote a letter of divorce, so now I am legal, I am biblical. And Jesus says, no, if you do this for any and every reason, and you get married to someone else, you're committing adultery. And so now their biblical mindset just got flushed down the toilet. Okay, you're not being biblical, you're committing adultery. If you're thinking you can do this for any reason, this is what's really happening. Because God didn't intend that. And so as he kind of exposes them and takes a stand on this issue of divorce, 
the disciples come in, and I got to tell you, this just cracks me up. Okay? Jesus says, no, you're married for life. And they say, if that's the case, then it's better not to marry. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of what they're saying. You know, well, if it's so strict, I guess it's better not to get married. Where were they at? And it gives you a little insight into the culture. If we're locked in, man, I, I guess we're stuck. Maybe it's better not to get married. And you got to just, it's kind of funny. What would prompt that response? I just asked myself, why would they ask or respond in this way after hearing this from Jesus? What would prompt that? And it's, it would seem obvious again, Jesus goes back to the place, you know, oh, it's better not to be married. It's like, wait a second, did you just hear me? God brought them together. It's what God's intention was. It wasn't that they would be celibates. It would seem obvious that creation itself was intending for there to be this husband and wife union. And so Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, eunuchs who were made that way, and those who choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept it should accept it. Now, a few things that I kind of want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about the king for the sake of the kingdom of God, um, what he's talking about there. But I also want to address something regarding divorce. What Jesus is saying here gives us a clearer understanding, again, of intention. I don't believe that Jesus is giving us an exclusive, all-encompassing scenario of every marriage and every problem that a marriage faces. I think he's trying to point us back to what God's intent is. He doesn't take away that divorce is something that can happen, but he gives an idea of what is supposed to be legitimate reasons and not for any and every reason. Is this all-encompassing? What if a husband is abusive physically to his wife? Is she allowed divorce? You see, this topic is, is he allowed to divorce his wife? It's kind of a one-sided subject because he's dealing with the culture. But what if things are reversed? What if the husband is abusive? Is she allowed to divorce her husband if he's being abusive? What criteria do we have? And you see, there is no way to, to understand every scenario. Jesus didn't go through. Well, let me give you the list of reasons that are okay. If the husband is abusive, if there's sexual immorality, if, you know, um, and list those things that take in place. If they cause someone to do something unbiblical, if the husband, you know, becomes perverted and wants the wife to do something wrong or unscriptural, or, you know, there, there's a whole list of things that you could go through and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And Jesus doesn't give us that list, but what he does give is intention of marriage, and that's where we work out of. God's intention is that you are to be together. That's his intent. He made them male and female. The two became one. It's not two people anymore. It's one person now what do we do? And the idea of sexual immorality is saying, I'm not going to be one person. I'm going to be joined to another person. And so now we're talking about splitting that, what is supposed to be one, and attaching to someone else. And so it's destroying the very intention of what God wanted in this area of marriage. But I don't believe Jesus is giving an all-encompassing, this is the only thing and the only reason for a divorce, but he's telling us what God's heart is, what the intention of marriage is, and we need to work from there. Any questions?
Yeah, I mean, her point is that marriage is kind of a staple. It is one of the foundational things of a society, and you break apart that, and it starts to affect you know the children and other areas in that sense. Definitely, definitely. Well, again, your your point: if you marry someone else, that's what's wrong. It goes to the point again. Why are you getting divorced? Because what was being tested here is for any and every reason. You know, I found a, a younger, hotter wife. I'm getting a divorce. I could never do that because my wife is the hottest. Um, <laughs> good save. <laughs> good save, right? Uh, and, and so the intention is, you know, for any and every reason, well, if you do that for that reason, then what's happening is you're committing adultery. In other words, you're finding a reason to justify having this other relationship. And Jesus is saying, is that wrong? It does not mean that anyone who has divorced and gets married to someone else is committing adultery. It's not saying that. No, he's saying those who give for any and every reason. You Pharisees, if you were to give up, if it wasn't for this reason, then it's committing adultery. It doesn't mean, though, if your husband or wife was unfaithful and they went and started another relationship, I guess I can never get married then because, you know, I'm divorced. He's not saying, well, no, yep, that's it, sorry, bad for you, You're, you've got to live alone now. That's not what he's saying. Okay, but what he is talking about is if you're choosing to band in this relationship just to start another one, what you're doing is committing adultery. Okay, let, let's go here, since we're here. What if you're, and you're a Christian, you can say that, why not, it happens all the time. You're a person who's a follower of Jesus, and you're in this marriage, and you're unhappy. You're bummed out. You know, you don't like him. You don't like her. And you go off, and one of them goes off and has an affair, and they get a divorce, and they get remarried, and now they're off with this other person. Jesus has said they have committed adultery because they've abandoned this relationship, and they've moved on. Can they be forgiven? Can they move on in this other relationship, even though it was a bad thing? Well, are you forgiven that something, whatever it is? You're not forgiven that something? So if you... <laughs> let, let's go here. Um, <laughs> if, if you do something wrong, you tell a lie. Let's make it something easy. If you tell a lie and you ask for forgiveness, are you forgiven for that lie? You don't think so? Well, the whole idea of forgiveness is not being accountable for the wrong that you did. Okay, not, not having to, to be judged for. You still might pay the consequences. You'll, you'll have to reap what you sow. We all do. But the consequences or the judgment from God for that is not going to be held there. And so if a person does something wrong, they tell a lie, they get drunk, they have an affair, they uh, fill in the blanks, do something wrong, and they ask forgiveness, First John says, if we confess our sin, in other words, we agree with God, it's wrong, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, it's not okay. It's never okay. The adultery is not okay. The, the, the lie is not okay. Well, again, if they acknowledge what they've done is wrong, if they say what I did was wrong, and I think they should still go to jail, I still think they should still pay the consequences of their crime. So just because a, a person who is a child molester does something that, that's not the unpardonable sin. I mean, the depravity of human beings is pretty mind-boggling, but the grace of God goes further still. And the grace of God takes people like Paul, who was murdering the church, 
or David who had an affair and then put her husband out to be murdered and says, I can forgive that person even in that depth. Forgiveness extends to that place. David still reaped the consequences of his sin. Saul still dealt with the things that he did. The child molester still needs to pay for the crime. And I don't think he should be allowed around other children. Okay, I think that's legit, and I think he should spend that time in prison. But God can still forgive that person. I might have a hard time. I might not like that person. I definitely don't want them around my kids without supervision, without being aware of their consequences, because it's easy to say I'm sorry, you know, but repentance and confession is I agree with God. What I did is wrong. I acknowledge that wrong. Can God forgive? And the scriptures say, yes, that's why Jesus died. Well, remember last week we talked about how many times should we forgive? Seven? Yeah, 70 times seven. So there's, forgiveness goes a long way. Now, again, it doesn't mean, and I think what you said is very telling, because it doesn't mean it's okay. Forgiveness never says it's okay. Forgiveness never says, oh, you had an affair, it's okay. It's not okay. It's never okay. Confession is admitting it's not okay. And so forgiveness isn't closing a blind eye and just saying, oh, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah. You know, it's dealing with the circumstance, but not holding the person to a judgment standard because of the things. In other words, I still want what's best for that person, even though it goes against the core of what I want. I don't want them in society. I don't think they need to be in society, but I don't want God's judgment to fall on them. I want forgiveness available to them. It was done to David. We all want it when it's our sin, but when it's someone else, it's easier to look and say, no, not you. Yeah, I mean, there's repent, godly repentance leads to change. Um, sometimes that change is slow. With David, it was a year before he repented of that sin with Bathsheba and Uriah uh, when Nathan busted him. And it's not like he never sinned after that again. Um, there were a lot of things that came up. And so we see examples of in Scripture, thank God for them, um, of people who fell and fell and fell again. And God restored and brought back to a place of, you know, relationship with them, you know, developing that relationship. Again, consequences are a different thing. I think there are consequences and they're supposed to be for the things that we've done, especially the things that are, you know, that detrimental. You know, in this area, kind of trying to keep focus here on the area of divorce and marriage. And the reason I wanted to go here is because there are so many people in our community who have been divorced, who are now remarried. And some of them, they were divorced for not legitimate reasons. You know, maybe they were young, maybe they were just foolish when they got married, maybe they took their vows lightly and they said, oh, I'm done with you, I'm going to be remarried. What is our demeanor towards those people? What's it supposed to be? Because some people will use this passage and say, well, now they're living in sin. And I don't think that's the intention of this passage. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Can you divorce for any, every reason? Well, if you divorce your wife just because you want another wife, you're committing adultery. He's telling them that. It doesn't mean the person who has done just that is now unforgiven and needs to be kicked, excommunicated out of the church. Sorry, we don't allow no adulterers here. You're living in an adulterous relationship and the little kids coming to church going, Mommy, what does that mean? I'm adultery. You know I mean? It, we all make mistakes. God forgives our mistakes. Thank God he forgives our mistakes. And the point of this passage is to deal with the religious legalists who are using the scripture and using the law to justify what they still wanted to do. 
I believe that's the intention of this passage, where Jesus is dealing with their, can you get divorced for any reason? Jesus says, God made you to be one. And if you're going to divorce just to get another wife, then you're committing adultery. Does God forgive adultery? Yes. He does. Was it a mistake? Yes. Will there be consequences? There will be emotional. There will be physical. There will be all kinds of consequences. Ask anyone who was married, had kids, and got divorced and gets married again if there's consequences. And they'll be happy to tell you all the consequences. There's tons. Yeah, now the kids, I've got them this weekend. They got them that weekend. We've got this. I mean, there's all kinds of consequences. We have people like that in our fellowship. Lots of them. Lots of them. There are brothers and sisters, and I want them to feel at home, and I don't want them having a cloud over their head because someone pulls this passage and says, oh, no, you can never get married again. Oh, you're married? Oh, you're committing adultery. Again, intention is real important here. What's the intention of the passage in Genesis? What's Jesus' intention with the Pharisees? Now, another point of the intention is that marriage is sacred. And we probably think of it a lot less sacred than it really is. Even the best of us probably think less of marriage than what God has intended it to be. And so marriage is sacred. It's not supposed to be separated. I had a conversation just this week. Well, if a person has had an affair, do you have to get a divorce? No. You don't have to. Do you have Rights, is it biblical? Yeah, you can, but it doesn't mean you have to. You can still bring forgiveness. Don't have to have the divorce, but it's a difficult thing. And again, if that person wants to continue, I, I remember uh, one person who they found out that their spouse was having an affair and they came in for counseling. What, what do I, they said they were sorry. Uh, and I said, what do you want to do? What, what do you want to happen? Well, I want to make my marriage work. Then go try to make it work. Because the intention is that you're one. Then they had another affair. And then they had another affair. And finally they said, I'm done. Because you're not wanting to be one. You're wanting to be all over the place. So the idea of marriage is not your idea of marriage. See, and they had total right. Yeah, you get divorced. This person doesn't want what marriage is supposed to be. So you have all the right in the world to get divorced in that circumstance. But at first when they said, should I get a divorce? I said, what do you want to do? Well, no, I want my marriage to work. Well, then try and make it work. Okay. And so, again, it's a difficult thing. Because it's a very emotional thing. You know, you talk about intimate relationships with people and the closeness and the amount of betrayal that's there, the amount of heartache that's there, and it's a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing. And then the idea of what we believe marriage is supposed to be and how cheap it has become. And it's easy to get locked into, you know, a religious point of view that becomes narrow and blind to the mercy of God and to the state that we're in. You know, we got people who've run off to Vegas and got married, you know, and they did that when they were drunk and, you know, 19, you know, and it's like, well, what do I do now? Well, you're married. What do you mean? What do you do now? You're, you're married. This is it. Well, it was a mistake. Yeah, it wasn't the smartest thing you've done, but, you know. Think of this, though, too. God, at this time, most marriages were arranged. You didn't know who you are going to get married to. It was up to the parents. Hey, they have three goats. You're marrying them. We need the goats. That doesn't seem fair. God, you're married. That's it. Which is another study in itself. Um, the next thing I want to... Any other thoughts on this? Or we'll try and move forward. Gosh, look at the time. Um, yeah, I don't know if we're going to make it through all this. Okay. Um, the, those who choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. There are people like Paul who, because of his work in ministry, having a family was 
difficult. And so he chose to live a life as a celibate so that he could further the work of God. Ministry will be invasive. It will affect your relationship. It doesn't have to be detrimental, but it will have a cost in that. And if you want to give yourself like a Mother Teresa who just went to India and just that became her, she was married to her ministry, okay? That's great. If you can choose to do that and you feel like you want to do that, great. If you don't want to, no worries. You don't have to, okay? It's not required. Um, we were watching something on TV where these nuns go and they just pull themselves out of society completely. And I just thought, oh, how sad. You're supposed to be the light of the world. You're the light of a monastery. You know what I mean? It's like you, you've just been taken out of your influence. And I think that's tragic. And marriage isn't supposed to do that. You know, you should be able to be married and still be influential, but it depends on what you want to do. Sometimes being married and going to Calcutta, India, might be a little difficult for you to raise a family. And if you don't want to, if you can commit yourself to that, great, but you don't have to. Um, then Jesus, let's go on. The little children. Let's move to something happy. Um, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. <laughs> the disciples, gotta love them. They're two for two here. Um, Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, we just saw that Jesus had brought a child in chapter 18 to him. We don't know from that point to this point how much time had passed, but we see that Jesus and little children go well together, and the reference with them in the kingdom of God we talked about last time. We talked about how children have innocence, how they have faith. Um, they are someone who we are supposed to emulate, and the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You know what? I so wish... I could have heard Jesus' prayer for those children. What did he pray? Because sometimes I just wonder, what can I pray for my kids? And what did Jesus, what is this blessing that he gave on them? I, I just, oh, how I wish we had. And Jesus said, whatever he said to these kids, I wish I knew. I just so wish I was reading this and I go, oh, I want to know what you prayed. But then I'd probably make it a model prayer and I'd probably, you know, do something wrong with it. Um, and that's probably why he didn't have it there. But children at this time were considered unimportant. The disciples wanted to scurry him. Hey, get these kids. They're wasting our time. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And so he placed his hands on them. He blessed them. He prayed for them. I don't know what the prayer was, but I wish I did. And so let's move on. Let's try and, and finish this chapter. Uh, okay. Just then, a man came up to Jesus, verse 16, asked, Teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Jesus, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's take this passage here, and then we'll go into Peter's response. You notice anything missing? Well, first, Jesus responds, if you want 
to enter life. I love that verse in verse 17. Then keep the commands. And he asks which ones, and then Jesus gives a list of these commands. Shall not murder, commit adultery. He's kind of going through the Ten Commandments here. Do you notice anything missing in these commandments that he's giving? Yeah, he, he, he skipped kind of the first four and goes to the last six. Interesting. Why do you think he did that? And then Jesus goes on to, to talk about this man's problem, right? Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. If, if you want to be perfect, and the idea of perfect is if you want to be complete, if you want to be whole, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know what, you need to join the human race again. You need to quit living for this stuff, and you need to start living for people. I think it's real easy for us to, to think of our relationship with God. It's just me and God. And Jesus is saying, what about all these things? And it's almost like Jesus saying, you know what? You're asking me these things. How are you doing in these things concerning other people? Oh, yeah, I've been good. I've been good. And then Jesus says, you know what? It's all about the stuff with you. It's all about the stuff. And what it seems to be doing in my mind and why he's pointing out these last commandments that deal with his relationship with other people is because he's trying to get him to be back connected with people. It's about people. It's not about your stuff. It's about the people. And what an amazing opportunity. If you want to be perfect and if you want to follow me, do this. And he couldn't. He couldn't do it. I believe Jesus wasn't concerned with the money. He was concerned with this man's humanity. He was concerned with this man and his real identity because his identity was his wealth. And it was disconnected from all the things he was saying. Well, I've kept the commands. I've kept the commands. You have kept the commands, but you are not a part of this human race. You can't let go of your stuff. Your stuff is your identity. And I, I, again, it's just like Jesus to point out the thing that we need to let go. Lord, I love you. I love you. Well, then stop this. Ah, not that. Anything but that. And the man went away sad. In one of the other Gospels, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus welcomed this man. He said, I want you to follow me. If you want to be perfect, do this. But you see, letting go of the stuff was harder than being perfect, than following Jesus because that stuff had become so much entrapped in his life. And Jesus talked about this in the parable, right? The riches and the cares of this world with the sower, and he sows the seed, they, the thorns come up, and all the things in this world, they choke out the word. Because it's the stuff, we start living for the stuff. We've been talking about that even last Sunday when we were talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what it's like, and how we want to take it and focus our attention on the temporary things and not on the eternal things. And so Jesus is pointing out these things to him, just where he lacks. And he, what an invitation he had. And think about what he left following Jesus for. How much money is worth following Jesus? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? What did he have that was so worth not following Jesus? Doesn't that make you ask questions in your own life? Is there anything I would say, no, I can't do that? And again, I think the reason Jesus left out the first four 
with the relationship with God is because your relationship with God is going to be displayed and seen through your relationship with others. I'll know how you are with God if I know how you are with the people around you. If you can't love your neighbor who you see, how can you love God who you haven't seen? Right? And so Jesus starts talking to him about this relationship and the man, oh yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Well, no, you're still about your stuff. You're playing religion. Any thoughts on this passage? Anything stand out? Yeah, well, Jesus didn't say this to everyone who came to follow him. He didn't tell everyone, you've got to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. Okay, so we know that that wasn't his intent for everybody, but it was for this man, and we see that it was hard for this man because of that. So, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving to the poor. That's a good thing. Again, it's, it was what was holding this man that Jesus was asking him to cut loose. Cut loose to the things that are holding you from following me. And so we have to all ask ourselves, what things are holding me from following Jesus wholeheartedly? What are those things? What's limiting me from giving myself fully to God? Well, you know, it's my work. Well, it's my family. Well, it's what is it? And where is it holding you and how is it holding you? Because maybe there is something that you need to, to change in that dynamic. You see, you can't abandon your kids, but sometimes your kids can keep you from following Jesus. Where is that line? I'll let you and God wrestle that one out. I'm still wrestling with it myself. But there are things that can keep you, and stuff is a big thing. And Jesus goes on and he mentions it. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they get so focused on the things. I think I heard that C.S. Lewis gave away 80% or more of his money. Over 80%. Because he didn't want it to be about the stuff. You know? And if you have a lot then a lot's going to be required. What are you doing with what you have? Some people use their wealth and are very generous and do great things with their wealth. And thank God for those people. Some people, it's all about the stuff and they live for it. And Jesus was talking about that. Now, let's try and finish this. His disciples heard that. Who can enter the kingdom of heaven and be saved? And Jesus said with Man, it's impossible. With God, is all possible. And Peter, in verse 27, answers, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? <laughs> three for three. <laughs> he just talked about the stuff, Peter. And you're like, it's almost like, well, what's going to be for us? And Jesus is going to get to that at the very end. But Jesus goes on, Truly I tell you, the renewal of all things, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Then he goes on in verse 30, I think is talking directly to Peter, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And the last closing, Jesus just tells him there is much to gain when you give up the little that you give up and that there's nothing that you give up here that you will not gain so much more. Now he talks about them sitting on thrones and being judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. I believe those are spiritual tribes that he's talking about. And, and I believe he's making a statement that's helping them to see that you're really not giving up anything, Peter, if you follow me. You're not giving up, you're getting a whole lot. And I think Peter saw that later on clearly. But he's pointing out to him, too, that the first will be last. If you're going to try and get something, guess what? You're going to be at the back of the line. You're not going to be at the front. Look at I'm following Jesus. I'm going to get a lot. Jesus is saying, no, get in the back of the line. If you want to be at the back and serve people, then you will get more. And so that's kind of what he's talking about. Any, any thoughts on this last 
versus Yeah, I mean, the top four are important too. You know, our relationship with God is necessary. It's not like it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's definitely an important part. Jesus didn't talk, and he didn't go in order with the other ones. He kind of generalized the, the ones that deal with people. But I believe what he was doing was trying to say that, you know, you want to be good. You want to be perfect. Because good isn't something you do. Good is God. Okay? God is the one who is good not something. You don't do good. God is good. That's kind of Jesus' point in that whole statement. And so if these last points are the things that I'm pointing to, they're the things that are dealing with your relationship, and that's going to show this relationship. You know, but yeah, you still need that relationship with God, but it's evident through how you deal with one another. Any other thoughts? Well, that went quick, at least for me. Uh, <laughs> Well, let's pray. Father, again, I am always challenged by you and your words. The scriptures are so powerful and so thought-provoking and so deep, Lord, that every time I go through them, even as I've gone through them before, I am challenged time and time again. And I pray that we would take these things and they would expand our thoughts and how we see you and how we see one another and how we are supposed to live, that it would push us and provoke us to lives of devotion and holiness and compassion. Lord, that we would recognize that our relationship with you is seen in how we treat children. Our relationship with you is evident in how we deal with our wives and how we deal with those around us and how we deal with our stuff. All these things, Lord, are opportunities for us to show what we believe and how we believe and how it affects the day-to-day -day lives that we live. And Lord, that's what you're caring about. You care about our marriages. You, you care about our children. You care about the stuff that blinds us to our relationship with you. God, you care about us so perfectly. And Lord, may we recognize that and may we respond. We love you because you first loved us. And thank you for this time, Lord. And we pray you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.